We'll turn again in God's Word to Revelation 7, and particularly verses 13 to the end of the chapter. We looked this morning at verses 9 and 10, and we saw that uh, what John saw in heaven, uh, he saw the church, the church triumphant. He saw the various attributes of that church. It was an innumerable uh, company of people, a multitude, from all these different nations and languages. They were united together, standing before the throne of the Lord and of the Lamb. They were pure, as we'll see this evening. And we saw the victory that belonged to them. Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And it challenges us uh, to have not a defeatist attitude, but a triumphant attitude. As we know what the church shall be in heaven, that's what we aim for here on earth. We wage a warfare that's a good warfare. And we look with hope, with faith, and with perseverance for these things that shall be. This evening I want us to consider verses 13 to 17. And this is what we passed over this morning. Because remember uh, that we saw that the people in heaven were clothed with white robes. Now that's it just simply stated there in verse 9 and then moved on. John notes it. But he continues on to hear what they're saying, and so on. But notice here in verse 13 that one of the elders in heaven speaks to John and says, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? Now it's obvious from what happens next. The elder isn't asking this question because of any ignorance on his part. He knows the answer. He's asking the question to get John himself to think, uh, to consider it. This is a topic that was worthy of thought. It was worthy of John's particular thought. Contemplate for a time, John, who are these people dressed in white and why are they dressed in white? And because it was a topic worthy of thought for John, therefore it's a topic worthy of thought for us. And we would take some time this evening to consider these white robes and how these people have been made clean. John replies in verse 14 to answer the question, Sir, you know. The implication there is that John is willing be instructed. This elder knows the answer and John is willing to learn. And that should be the same attitude for us as we come to the scriptures. If there's something worthy of thought, let us be prepared to listen and to heed what God says to us. The answer is in verse 14. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood the Lamb. These are ones that have passed through the great tribulation. Now we know that there is tribulation before glory. Suffering comes before glory. We are co-heirs together with Christ provided that we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together with him. The Christian life is one of suffering here on earth. Suffering with Christ that we may be glorified together with him. 
But this is the great tribulation here that is in mind, a specific tribulation. There are tribulations common to Christians throughout the years. But this tribulation is a great tribulation. And time would fail us this evening really to consider all that this means. We would really need a series of sermons on uh, the earlier part of Revelation alone to get into this. You see, in many ways, what we see in the various chapters in Revelation, these wonderful pictures, there, there are ideals that can be applied to any generation of Christians. There are things there that we can take and learn from and see these apply to any person in the church of Christ, in any age. But we should also remember that Revelation is a revealing of the history of the world, things that are soon to come, things that are to take place. Uh, And and so uh, John is is showing us what he saw in his vision, that is, uh, the, the unraveling, as it were, of God's plan for time. And we would find ourselves somewhere in the book of Revelation. Uh, What is happening in our time fits in to this timeline that is here in Revelation. Of course, there's all sorts of debates about where and when each particular thing is. Many people just dismiss that idea altogether. But but, uh, for the, I think, the majority of the Reformed scholars throughout the years have seen that this book is one that shows us history. Where specifically we divide one century from the next, that is where many will differ. But nevertheless, it is a historical book. And so this great tribulation that is spoken of here in verse 15, um, or sorry, verse uh, 14, is a specific tribulation, a specific time of severe persecution for the church of Christ in this world. Probably uh, it is under Antichrist himself, under uh, the the Roman Catholic uh, Pope uh, and the various ways in which he has persecuted the church in times past. That is particularly what is in focus here, I think. But that's the specific context that we can't go into this evening because, as I said, we'd have to go through the earlier chapters. Chapter 6, for example just skim your eye over it, you see that it is the Lamb in heaven opening up the seals of his scroll. And each time he opens a seal, because only he has authority to open the seal, a new plague or judgment is poured out on the earth. And only once each judgment is completed is the next seal opened by the Lamb. And and that is... uh, the passing of history. Those are specific events that happen over time. And then we reach chapter 7 and we see those who have come out of the great tribulation which is passed. But although there is a specific context historically, there's a lot that applies generally to all Christians in time. And that's particularly what we'll think of this evening. What John is to note in particular is that there are these people arrayed in white robes in heaven. That is what every single person in heaven is wearing. Why? Why are they wearing white? And the answer there in verse 14, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white 
in the blood of the Lamb. That is the reason they are made white with the blood of the Lamb. And very uh, briefly there, there's an implication. They were not always clean. That's our first point. These people wearing white robes had previously been filthy. They had previously been defiled. It doesn't tell us that uh, in a lot of words in the passage, but it does tell us that they've been washed. And you only wash if you are unclean. The Bible's witness to us is that sin is defilement. That sin is uncleanness. If these people in heaven had always been wearing white robes, then the question that the elder asks would have very little relevance. Why are they wearing white? Because that is what they've always worn. They've always been clean. Always been pure. The very fact he asks the question draws to our note. These people have not always been clean. In fact, they have been filthy in the sight of God. Isn't that the natural condition of man? Defiled, unclean, and filthy. The Bible uses dirt as a picture of sin. For example, in Ezra 9, the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the land, with their abominations which have filled it from one end to another, with their impurity. So the serving of false gods is particularly there shown as uncleanness. Filthiness is natural to the fallen man. It is part of who he is. Not just externally, but internally. The lusts in his heart are described in Romans 1 as uncleanness. And as Paul says elsewhere, that we have given our members, parts of our bodies, we have given them as instruments or slaves of uncleanness. Isaiah testifies, but we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. That is the assessment of the natural man. Unclean as a totality. But then also the things that fallen man thinks are good, thinks are righteous, are actually filthy rags in the sight of God. There is no fooling God. We may think that we look good externally, but as we thought last week about the Pharisees, inwardly they were full of dead men's bones. And all uncleanness. Sometimes I think we picture infants as being innocent and pure. As soon as they're brought into the world, sometimes you hear people say, what can be more innocent than a child? And maybe we think of, of na- the natural man as it brought into the world in innocency, pure and white and clean. And each sin that that person commits in time adds a blot to their outfit so that the longer they live the more stained they become is that the way you ever think of sin we start with a clean slate and we get slots patches of dirt as we sin day by day but that's not the way it is that is not the way it is rather it is that we start to fight 
We start absolutely covered, as we would say, claret in mud, top to bottom. And each sin is like more mud being splattered on. But you can barely see the new mud because you've already been covered in the old. Imagine someone who is completely covered head to toe in mud. And they're walking, trying to avoid puddles of water and mud lest they get splashed and lest they get dirty. You would think that that person is a fool to think uh, that by avoiding mud they can keep themselves clean. They're already covered. They're already defiled. They need to be washed. And that's the very point. Our natural condition is one of defilement. We're not brought forward in innocency and then become defiled. We are brought forth defiled. And we sin because of that. We already are soiled in our garments. And we fool ourselves by thinking we're not as bad as we are. Proverbs 30 and verse 12 says, There is a generation that is pure in its own eyes. Yet it is not washed from its filthiness. That is how many people are. That is what many people think of themselves. They are pure as far as their own assessment. They think they are clean, but they are in fact defiled naturally. Job 14 asks, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? And the answer is a resounding, no one. No one can take something that is unclean and bring something clean out of it. And so it is for every fallen man, woman and child. Unclean. They cannot bring forth a clean thought, a clean word, or a clean action. Because everything comes from their heart, which is defiled. And every action is a filthy rag in the sight of God. Yes, when you compare yourself to those around you who are themselves covered in dirt, you don't look so bad. When everyone is dirty, we all look the same. But stand in the presence of God. The one who is holy, holy, holy. And what does Isaiah say? Woe is me. I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips. He felt his lips as being defiled. Unclean. There was a a, a sin in his words, in his speech. He wasn't sanctified in his speech. And here he was in the presence of God. And he felt The radiant brightness of God's glory. And he felt his uncleanness. Woe is me, for I am undone. Friends, oh that we ourselves would feel undone because of our uncleanness. And not just because of the individual sins that we have committed in time. But because of the natural depravity of our heart. Don't just lament specific sins that you have committed. Lament the sin of your heart. That which you were born with. That which plagues you in your heart. Because we cannot stand in God's presence in such filth and impurity. Isaiah tells us that there's a highway of holiness. But the unclean shall not pass over it. The unclean cannot walk in God's ways and therefore the unclean cannot enter into heaven 
Look at this scene again in Revelation 7. And do you see anyone with spots and blemishes? Do you see anyone who is defiled? Do you see anyone who has mud and filth? No, they are all clean, gloriously white and pure. And friends, let that be a warning to you. That as long as you remain in your natural filth, you cannot enter heaven. Lament your sinfulness and lament your uncleanness. That's the first thing we see. These people had been filthy. Otherwise, there would have been no need for them to be washed. That leads us into our second point. That, of course, they were washed. That's the answer that the elder gives. Who are these ones? Ones who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These soiled rags had been plunged into the blood of Christ and had come out whiter than white. You see, natural reason would tell you that you don't clean clothes in that way. You need to use water and and the launderer's soap. But here we see that it's the dirty rags are put in blood. They are washed head to toe in the blood of the Lamb. How many people there are who object to being washed in the blood of Christ? They, They doubt it will do them any good, and so they refuse it. And yet these ones here who are in heaven are ones whom the blood of Christ has been sprinkled on. Not literally. Of course, there is no literal blood of Christ here on earth. But they have been washed by him in his grace. And their clothes are fully cleansed. Zechariah chapter 13 says, In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for all the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. You see, there was an appointment, an appointment that was planned before time began, that there would be a fountain opened up for the unclean, a fountain where the waters constantly flow, not a little water, but a constant supply of water to clean the filthy and the defiled, to wash away sin. And that fountain is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a fountain of his blood, That he willingly shed in order to wash and to make clean. The blood was graciously given. For without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. Peter testifies that we're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. We're redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. As of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. Is the blood of Christ precious to you. That's what Peter says, isn't it? He doesn't just say we were redeemed with the blood of Christ. He says we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. And friends, the blood of Christ must become precious to you. Have you lamented your uncleanness? Well then go to the blood of Christ and count it precious because it will wash you and it will make you clean. These people dressed in white robes have essentially been washed in two ways. Their justification and their sanctification. And I've said this before, those are twin graces. They they go together. If you're justified, you're being sanctified. 
If you are being sanctified, then you must have been justified. The the church, I think, today, uh, in part, tries to focus on justification and not so much on sanctification. And texts of the scripture that are clearly about our growth in holiness are all put through the lens of justification. This is simply what Jesus has done in order to forgive you your sins, and so on. But we see that if we are to go to heaven, we must both be justified and sanctified. We need to be cleansed of guilt and sin, but we also must have holiness, without which we shall not see the Lord. Sin must be put to death, and we must put on righteousness. Friends, Let's not be tempted to think that justification comes by Christ's blood. And sanctification is simply by human effort. You can look what it says here in verse 14. These people have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The cleansing comes from Christ's blood. The cleansing of justification and the cleansing of sanctification... Both come by the efficacy of the blood of Christ. One cleanses our record from all sin so that we're innocent. The other washes us inwardly to change us so that we become truly holy. Let's consider both. First, the washing from guilt, that is, in our justification. Think of a passage like Zechariah chapter 3 where Joshua the high priest is clothed in filthy garments and Satan is there in the presence of God to oppose Joshua. He's defiled. He is not fit for heaven. And yet, he is, it is said to, jo- to Joshua, take away the filthy garments from him. See, I have removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with rich See, that's it, isn't it? Our filthy garments are removed and we're given instead rich robes. As we see in this passage, white robes. The blood of Christ washes away our uncleanness and the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us so that we are clean in the eyes of God. 1 John chapter 1 tells us twice over that the blood of Christ cleanses from sin. It says in verse 7 that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. Not from some sins, but all sin. Every sin. The blood of Christ can wash and make clean. What is your sin? What is in your heart? What guilt have you incurred before God? What are your debts? The blood of Christ washes. And verse 9 of that same chapter says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so there you have it. You have the fact that the blood of Christ cleanses from sin. And you have the way to have access to that cleansing. Confess your sins. Confess your sins in repentance. Go to him in faith. And he is faithful and just. He will not punish you for your sin. He will cleanse you from it. Justification has a cleansing from sin and from guilt. But we see also that these people in heaven are sanctified. 
They are washed and made really clean. It's not just that they've been declared clean and still are filthy on the inside. No, they are free from their sin now. They are washed in a totality, inwardly. They've been washed with sanctification. Of course, there is that definitive sanctification in the new birth. Uh, that we are uh, a new man, a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. But there is the working out of that principle in time. And day by day, we need to be washed from defilement and continue to be uh, freed from the presence and the power of sin. We must apply to the blood of Christ. Because that alone can make the change. We we can't change ourselves. We can't sanctify ourselves. We can't make ourselves holy because we are naturally weak. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? That's what we, we heard earlier from Job. Who can do it? And even if the power of sin is broken in our lives, in the new birth, even still there remains so much defilement in the in the, the human heart of the spiritual man, the redeemed man, who can by themselves bring clean out of unclean? But Christ can. Christ's blood has power in it to, to save you and me from all sin, to, to help us conquer sin and to put it to death. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1, for example. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. And in the process of sanctification, it's the word of God that helps us. The word is powerful, and it's through this word that we are sanctified. As James 1 shows us, therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. See friends, these saints here in heaven, in these beautiful white robes, have not just been secretly washed in their justification, but they have been washed really within that they are sanctified and have become pure. Of course, their final washing has been in their glorification. Our sanctification is not complete in time. But nevertheless, they enter into heaven perfect with no more sin. If they had only been washed by justification, what need would there have been for them to suffer? We see there in verse 14 that they've come out of the great tribulation. They have suffered persecution at the hands of wicked men. You only suffer persecution because of God's work in you. Because of some holiness in you that is disgusting and odious in the sight of the world. If they had not been washing themselves day by day in the blood of Christ and becoming holy, there would have been no need for them to suffer. Friends, ask yourself the question, are you washed in the blood of Christ? Have you counted it precious? Have you confessed your sin and gone to Christ alone for cleansing? And are you going to him that his blood may sanctify you 
from all the filth that remains inwardly. All that sin that must be removed. It's only in Christ that we can have the deliverance. His blood is needed. Don't begin by the Spirit to continue by the flesh. Don't begin uh, by trusting in Christ's blood and then try to sanctify yourself. Go to the blood. And we see here it's the only way that we can be washed and made clean. So we've seen that these saints have been, had been filthy. We've seen that they were washed. And then thirdly and very briefly, I just want us to see a few ways, or a few things rather, that these saints are now entitled to. Because they have been washed, because they are now clean, they are entitled to these things. Look at verse 15. Therefore. That's the first word. Therefore. Because they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb and are now whiter than snow, therefore. There's a consequence. Therefore, uh, they are before the throne of God. And so on. Four things, four entitlements that washing in the blood of Christ give to us. First of all, you can now be in God's presence. If you have been washed in the blood of Christ, you now can have fellowship with God. You can now be close to Him. In in the human condition, the natural condition, you would be odious in the sight of God. You would be repulsive to Him. Think of someone who is defiled, top to toe in mud. And they come in and they stink of mud. And it's displeasing. You wouldn't want to sit next to them. Lest they would rub their dirt off on you. And you could become unclean. Sinners are not permitted into heaven. Sinners may not go in their filth before the holy God. They must come by washing in the blood of Christ. These saints have been washed. And therefore, verse 15 says, Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. You see those two sides in verse 15. It's reciprocal, isn't it? We see, first of all, the saints are before the throne of God. The saints may go into God's presence and be at the throne, near the Lord and the Lamb. But we see also the other side, the reciprocal side. What does God do? He who sits on the throne will dwell amongst them. We we see that by being washed in the blood of Christ, we can go to God and God comes us. Isn't that fellowship? We can fellowship with God and he with us. It's it's similar to the idea in the covenant. He is our God and we are his people. We take him as ours. He takes us as his. And so it is with our fellowship. Having been made clean, we can come close and he can come close to us. Secondly, we are satisfied. The saints in heaven are fully satisfied. We taste a little bit of it here on earth. And maybe on a Sabbath day we're fed through the scriptures and we're satisfied by what we hear of Christ. But in heaven there is perfect satisfaction. Look at verse 16 
It says they shall neither hunger anymore, nor thirst anymore. See, fully satisfied. How many times on earth we become hungry and thirsty? But in heaven there shall be no hunger and no thirsting. There shall be no lack. There shall be no starvation. All our physical needs will be supplied. But more than that, our spiritual needs. On earth there can be a a spiritual lack. We can feel like we're in a dry and weary land where there is no water. We, we can feel that, that God's face has turned from us and, and we're left to ourselves and there's no spiritual substance. We feel like we're wasting away. The Lord can decree it for a time that there is a famine of the word of God in a particular region where there is little gospel preaching and the people are starving and people perish for lack of knowledge. But in heaven, there are no such things. Every spiritual desire is fully satisfied with what is good. Hunger and thirst after righteousness now. You may receive some satisfaction, but when you go to heaven, there will be the perfect and complete satisfaction. There will be a feast, a table loaded with food, that we can eat and drink. Then we see a, another uh, consequence of being washed in the Lamb. We, we may be in God's presence. We're satisfied. Thirdly, we're protected. Verse 16. The second half. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. Perhaps you hear there an echo of Psalm 121. We're not harmed by the sun by day, nor by the moon at night. The Lord keeps us from every evil, not just now, but henceforth and forever. And so it is that the Lord protects his people in eternity. Nothing can touch them. Nothing can harm them. Satan, who has sent fiery darts at us, here on earth, sending doubts to us, may not touch us in heaven. He may not enter in. Those who have persecuted Christ's people here on earth will not be able to touch them when they enter into heaven. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. Where does this satisfaction and this protection of verse 16 come from? Look at verse 17, and I think it's a lovely image. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to fountains of waters. Why is there satisfaction and protection in heaven? Because there's a good shepherd. A good shepherd who has laid down his life for the sheep. Uh, The the word here uh, used, we have it in the New King James, a shepherd. That is a good translation of this word. I think in the King James it says feed. And and that's true also. Uh, The lamb who is in the midst of the throne will feed them. That's true. But it's particularly the idea of a shepherd who feeds his sheep. A shepherd who cares for them. Who leads them to green pastures. Who leads them by the still waters. And who restores their soul. That's the picture here. It's everything included in Psalm 23. The lamb who was slain is the chief shepherd of the sheep. That is the reason why the saints in heaven are satisfied and protected 
That is the reason why the saints enter in as they pass through the valley of the shadow of death. They need fear no evil, for the good shepherd of the sheep is with them. He's with them. We see that he shepherds them particularly by the fountain of waters, the fountains of waters, the the streams flowing with living (coughs) waters, uh, water that is abundant, water that gives eternal life, water that flows and brings grace and love to the individual to revive and to refresh their weary souls so that in heaven there is vitality. Every Christian in heaven will be refreshed and vital. Here on earth, you know what it's like in the church. There are times that we feel refreshed. There are times that we feel really alive. And then there are times that we feel like we're languishing in our souls. We look around us and and sometimes we, we share the same experiences with others. But other times there are some who are alive and revived and, so, and we are left behind. But in heaven there is such an outpouring of the fountains of water by the chief shepherd of the sheep that we will all be alive, revived and refreshed. So we see that the consequence of being washed in the blood of the Lamb is that we enter into God's presence and he comes to us. We're satisfied, we're protected and then finally we're also comforted. The saints in heaven are perfectly comforted. Verse 17, the last part, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What precious words that the Lord gives to us. It's not just that there shall be no weeping, that there shall be no sorrow. That would be glorious enough. But it's that God himself will deal with the tears that come from our eyes. He will tenderly wipe away every pain and all our misery. Why do we weep here on earth? We weep at times. Perhaps we've been bereaved. Perhaps we're going through pain and suffering. Perhaps we weep over our sin and the sorrow that comes through it. And we mourn our sin and lament it and long to be rid of sin. There are many reasons why we weep. But in heaven, there shall be no weeping. There shall be no bereavement, no pain, no suffering, and no sin to cause us sorrow. There shall be nothing but pure, unadulterated happiness, full and complete, in the presence of the Lord and of the Lamb. He gives us life and life abundant. Life to the full. The happiest life that can ever be. Because he himself himself is the chief source of joy and happiness. All the pleasures are at his right hand forever. And so friends, in these short verses, we have these entitlements that belong to the Christian. Now you have a foretaste of them through the word, through God's providence, through his dealing with your soul. But we can't have them unbroken. They they, they come for a time and then we feel their absence. We we get joy for a season and then joy seems to be gone from us and we're mourning once again. 
We're satisfied for a time and then we feel like we're in the wilderness. We're protected from evil and then we feel attacked on every side and hard pressed. These things we taste a foretaste. But in heaven, those who have been washed by the Lamb shall enjoy these things perfectly and fully. And friends, all I can say to you in closing is that if you want to taste of these benefits, if you want these entitlements, it only comes by being washed in the blood of the Lamb. And friends, it's not enough for us to say, I was washed in the blood some years ago. I have been saved. We must go day by day to the blood of the Lamb for fresh forgiveness, for fresh sin, but also that we might be sanctified and purified and made truly holy. Are you going to the blood of the Lamb? Because it will make you whiter than snow. And his blood will make you fit for heaven itself. Amen. Let's stand to pray. O Lord our God, words fail us to speak of what heaven shall be like. Your word gives to us these pictures which are helpful. And yet even still we're only scratching the surface into what heaven is like. Help us to dream of heaven. Help us to meditate upon what is there for the people of God. Help us to desire glory and to be with you. That we might be done with sin in this world. And that we might be in your, in your presence forevermore. Oh, we pray that we might count the blood of Christ precious. And that we might go to it for washing. That we might be truly clean. And Lord, that those who are defiled and filthy would not think themselves pure in their own eyes. But that they would see their defilement. And that they would confess their sins knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive sin and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. Hear our prayers then, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll conclude with singing from Psalm 23. As we think of the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne, who will shepherd his people to the fountains of living water, we see here these very things in Psalm 23. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me down to lie in pastures green. He leadeth me the quiet waters by. And it takes us all the way uh, to heaven itself, to the table spread, uh, to the house of God forevermore, where there's a dwelling place for all those washed by the Lamb. Psalm 23, the whole psalm, we sing to God's praise. The Lord, my shepherd, Hey, hey, hey.